Great to see you all here this morning, and welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us online. We're continuing our series on the book of Galatians that we're calling No Other Gospel. And I want you to know that I'm thoroughly enjoying this series. I've been familiar with Galatians for a long time, but one of the amazing things about God's Word is, no matter how many times we've read it, as we read it fresh, the Holy Spirit communicates His truth to us in powerful ways that really apply kind of uniquely to the situation we find ourselves walking in. So I've really, uh, I've, I've sensed God moving in our midst too as we preached over the last number of weeks, as, as Evan and Jen and myself has pre- have preached. Um, I, I feel like that what we're experiencing as we experience the Word of God coming alive is really what the Scripture speaks about. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, for the word of God is alive and active. God's word revealed to us in the scriptures is powerful and life-changing. As we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit interacts with us and reveals his truth to us. And as I think about today, that's really my prayer for today, that as we look at Galatians and what Paul tells us in this book, that God's Spirit interacts with us and, and reveals His truth to our hearts. I'm looking forward to what God has for us again this morning as we explore His Word. Before I dive into chapters 4 and 5, I want to say how much I appreciated Evan and Jen's sermons these past couple of weeks. Uh, they did, both did a phenomenal job in preaching. I told them that outside of Romans, the book of Galatians is probably Paul's most complicated book in the New Testament. There's a lot of background that goes into that, and we've been trying to unpack some of that for you over the last couple weeks to kind of bring you up to speed with the context of what Paul's saying. Um, I'm blessed to be part of a staff that has such a strong team of preachers. I love being able to hear other people preach, and I hear great responses from you all. I think it really brings power to our team because all of us come from different perspectives, different backgrounds, and to be able to communicate together I feel like it really gives us a full kind of representation of what God's Word is saying. Our focus today is the end of chapter 4 of Galatians and the first 12 verses of chapter 5. And in this passage, Paul focuses on a theme that is near and dear to our hearts as Americans. Freedom. The word free or freedom is used seven times in this passage, and it's contrasted with the words slaves and slavery which occurs eight times. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is really the heart of the message, and I'd like you to read these words with me, if we could have those on the screen. There we go. Let's read these words together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we'll stop there. I'm going to go on to the rest. But let's read that bold part one more time. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the verse continues, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. So what's Paul referring to in his use of the words freedom and slavery? If you're joining with us for the first time today and you haven't been part of the first three weeks of this series, I hope that you'll be able to tune in quickly. I don't, I don't want this to be like a part four where you have to listen to all three parts to understand what's being said. By the same token, I would encourage you, if you're here for the first time, or those of you who have been here throughout, I think you would benefit just by kind of refreshing yourself on these first three messages, because they really do tie together as we walk through this letter. 
the messages really provide context for Paul's writing and for our sermon series, which again, we've titled, No Other Gospel. Now, Paul is extremely passionate about the sufficiency of the gospel, which I think can be summed up as follows. Jesus came into the world as God's son, and he died for our sins and was raised to life so that all people, and you might want to capitalize that word all because that's a theme throughout Galatians, so that all people can be saved by placing their faith in him. The heart of the gospel for Paul is that all people, regardless of nationality or religion, irrespective of their gender, and not taking into account whatever their circumstance or life situation might be, that all people can experience salvation and freedom from sin and death through Jesus. Now the problem in Galatia, and Galatia wasn't unique in this, was that new believers who were Gentiles, and that means they weren't Jews by birth, were being told by Jewish Christians that it wasn't enough just to place their faith in Jesus, they also needed to follow the Old Testament law. And a central part of the law was circumcision of all, of all males. The mark of circumcision on the life-giving organ of males set apart the Jews as God's people, and some Jewish Christians were confusing the new Gentile converts to Christianity by telling them that they needed to be circumcised as part of fulfilling the Jewish law. And so with everything in him, the Apostle Paul, who throughout his writings makes the case that he was the most devout of all Jews, and he was rising to become a, a, a star in the Jewish community because of how devout he was to following the law, until he was converted to Christianity, until Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus where he was going to imprison and kill Christians. With everything in him, Paul says, no, no, no. Don't add anything to the gospel. Placing your faith in Jesus is enough. In fact, he says, adding requirements to our faith in Jesus actually negates the work that God did for us on the cross. And to make his point and show how serious he is, Paul writes what I find to be one of the most memorable lines in the New Testament. In fact, I've been telling our staff since I knew we were preaching in Galatians, I'm very curious to see who gets to preach on this verse. Well, I'm the lucky one. In verse 12 of Galatians 5, the last verse of today's passage, the Apostle Paul writes a verse that I came across in Bible quizzing when I was a middle schooler. So you've got to cut me some slack here, right? But it's always stuck with me. Are you ready? Speaking of those who were confusing new Christians by telling them they needed to follow the Jewish law, including having their males circumcised, Paul wrote this. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now that sounds pretty strong, right? And we're like, whoa, Paul, like, hey, just calm down a little bit, dial it back a bit. But that's how passionate Paul is about the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross and the danger of adding anything to the pure, simple, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was adamant that embracing the gospel leads to freedom, but adding to it results in slavery. Now, I need to make a, a qualifying statement here. Whenever someone makes the claim that faith, not our works, is what allows us to be identified as followers of Jesus, an objection is inevitably raised. 
The Apostle Paul faced this objection repeatedly. As we read through the Old New Testament, we see him countering this argument. And it happens today when someone seems to correct our tendency to rely on good works rather than prioritizing faith. The objection goes something like this. Faith alone is too soft, too subjective, too easy. Surely what we do and how we live our lives matters. That objection, I could make a case, as you read through Paul's letters, is really what most of the New Testament is spent addressing. The extremes of, hey, because I believe by faith, I can do anything I want. And on the other side of that, no, being a Christian means following a a strict set of rules, and what I do matters a lot. Those are kind of the two extremes. And in almost every letter, if you read through that grid that Paul writes, you'll see him saying, it's by faith that we're saved. It's by faith in Jesus Christ and his grace, not based on the works that we do. We don't seek to earn God's behavior. We don't seem to earn God's favor or his grace by what we do. What we do in living a life that's pleasing to God flows out of our love for him and the relationship that we have with him. Here's the key. The book of James addresses this very well. When we do good works to try and earn our salvation or to receive God's approval, we're ultimately saying salvation is dependent on us and on what we do, not on what God has already done through Jesus. When we embrace our identity as God's child and accept his grace and salvation by faith, good works and a lifestyle that is pleasing to God will naturally flow out of us. So it's not to say, believe in, believe in God's grace by faith and then do whatever you want. It's as we believe by faith and we walk in God's grace, empowered by his spirit, our lives resemble Jesus and how he tells us to live, how he wants us to live. When we prioritize the work that we do, we expend our energy striving to achieve our salvation. When we prioritize the faith we place in God's grace, our good works are the result or the byproduct of us already being loved and accepted by God and empowered by his spirit. Think about it this way. Parents, and if you're not parents, you've been a child, so all of us kind of fit into this in some way, right? Parents, do you want your child to do what's right because they think they need to gain your love and approval? Or do you want them to do right because they're securing your love and want to strengthen their relationship with you by doing what pleases you? Those sound similar, but they're worlds apart. They're really about motivation. If our goal in life is to try and please God and and earn his favor by what we do, achieve our salvation, we never get there. If, on the other hand, when, on the other hand, we embrace by faith the grace of Jesus Christ and are empowered by his spirit, what we do and the way we live in a way that's pleasing to God naturally flows out of us. You know, Paul makes this case, I don't know if it's in Galatians or somewhere else, but at one point he challenges these Jewish Christians 
who are telling Gentiles they need to be saved. And he said, you all haven't been able to follow the law for 400 years. Why are you trying to put that burden on the Gentiles? The purpose of the law, Paul writes, is to show us our inability. And Evan, did, um, Evan or Jen, or maybe both, did a great job unpacking this for us. The purpose of the law is to show us our inability to keep God's rules. The fact that we need his Holy Spirit to help us actually do what he asks us to do. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin, not to give us a mechanism to be able to live free from sin. And then as that realization hit, then God sent Jesus and said, okay, here's a perfect sacrifice, one who's going to take away your sin, and one who by his Holy Spirit is going to empower you to live in the way that he's asking us to live. Not in a way that we're seeking to gain his approval or achieve his salvation. Hopefully as we read more of this, pass of, of this passage for today and kind of unpack this, we're going to continue to have a, a greater understanding. And I, even as I preach this, I sent this out to our staff and I said, hey, help me with this. Help me find ways to communicate this because this is a really challenging concept because every one of us are bent as a person, is to feel like we have to earn God's favor. We have to earn our salvation. We have to achieve something. If I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll get this. And yet the freeing message of the cross was, God has done the work for you in Jesus. You need to accept and receive his grace and then allow his Holy Spirit to live in you in the way that God calls us to live. So we're going to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, and I invite you to follow along. It will also be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively, the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah and their attempt to fulfill God's promise through, by having a son through Abraham's um, servant girl, that, that, that might be a little fuzzy to how all that, that connects. But what Paul is trying to get across is the, mess, the contrast between slavery and freedom. Slavery that comes from following the law and freedom that comes from, from receiving the grace 
that's available to us in Jesus Christ. And so in support of his argument for freedom and against slavery, Paul reaches back into Jewish history, to Abraham, the man God first called to follow him, who was essentially the original Israelite. Paul unfolds the argument that Abraham was accepted by God and walked in relationship with him based on his faith, not because he followed the law. And in fact, the law didn't exist while Abraham lived. It wasn't given to the Israelites until 500 plus years later when Moses met with God and received the law on Mount Sinai. And what I'm going to share with you next, I don't remember exactly where I read it, and so I can't give the person credit. But I came across this several years ago, and it really resonated with me. The author was making the point that in Paul's time, Moses was viewed by the Jewish people as Israel's George Washington, if you will, kind of the founder of their nation. Because Moses was the lawgiver, he was the one through whom God had given the Ten Commandments and the law. And since the time of Moses, the law had been revered by the Jewish people. It's what set them apart from all the other nations and clearly marked them as God's people. And that's where circumcision tied into that. Circumcision as part of the law was a mark that identified the Jewish people as God's people. By contrast, Paul highlights the priority of faith in God. And so he kind of, in our language, flips the script, if you will. From Moses the lawgiver the one to whom God gave the Ten Commandments, to Abraham, the man of faith, who believed God and was accepted by, accepted by God based on his belief. And so Paul, in essence, says it's faith in God, not following the law, that sets apart people as God's children. And so that's kind of his, his argument that he's going to unfold even more here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then I want to share how I believe this applies to us today. Galatians 5, chapter 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is then obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, I just want to pause there, the rest of this book, the Spirit is going to be a key concept. I'm going to touch on it today, and then Evan's going to talk about, a, about it a lot next week, about him, the Spirit. We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Paul, as you can see, is really passionate about this. 
In these verses, he reinforces the understanding that I mentioned during the first message in the series. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If we take our faith in Jesus and the grace that he's poured into our lives and say, we need to add something to that, it essentially negates the message of the gospel. But Jesus stands alone, self-sufficient, all-sufficient. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What was occurring at Galatia was happening all across the New Testament world. There was widespread confusion over whether Gentiles, Christians, needed to follow the law to please Jesus and receive his salvation. And as we read through particularly the book of Acts, we see God addressing this repeatedly. First of all, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on Jews and Gentiles who placed their faith in Jesus, demonstrating that these religious and cultural differences didn't matter to God. Later, Jesus miraculously appeared to Paul, who was the Jewish law follower par excellence, and convinced him that by persecuting Jews who placed their faith in Jesus, he was actually opposing God. And then he called Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul was the most unlikely person there was to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But that's the call God placed in his life. Later, God gave Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10. Peter was sleeping before he ate a noon meal and uh, saw a vision where a sheet was let down from heaven with all kind of unclean or, in our language, non-kosher food, and the voice said, kill and eat. Peter knew it was God, but Peter said, I can't eat that. That's against the Jewish law. The sheet was let up and then put down again, and the voice said again, kill and eat. And while Peter was wondering about the message, why would God be calling me to eat food that I believe my whole life was against the law, a Gentile showed up at his door. There was a knock on his door. Peter went down. The Gentile said, hey, Cornelius the centurion is a God-fearing man who wants to learn about Jesus. Would you come and preach to him? And the light bulb went off in Paul's head. Ah, that's the meaning of the vision that no longer is the law supposed to take precedence, people can come to faith in Christ simply by faith without following the Jewish law. Peter goes, he preaches to Cornelius and his household, the whole group accepts Christ, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. That was a strategic occurrence because Peter then became a spokesperson to the other new Christians who were Jews in saying, hey, This is for Gentiles too. I witnessed it. I preached to them. They received by faith, and the Holy Spirit came on them just like he did on us. Finally, in Acts chapter 15, we have what we know as the Jewish Council, a group of the apostles and elders, leaders in the early church, met to consider the circumcision question. There it is again. Whether Gentile converts needed to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law to be saved. Their final decision, led by the Spirit, was this, and I love this phrasing. I quote, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that. As they met together in community, as they sought the Spirit, they said, you know what? It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they go on and say, Not to burden you 
with anything beyond the following requirements. And there's a lot there, but they said basically they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols because of the uncertainty around whether that was idol worship or not. And they should abstain from sexual immorality. That was it. Other than that, follow the Spirit. You don't have to follow the law. Against that backdrop, Paul could confidently say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Now, while not unheard of, it's rare for followers of Jesus today to be told that we have to follow the Jewish law to be a Christian. But many of us still struggle with a related challenge. Are we saved and declared righteous by Jesus based on what we do or based on the faith that we place in Jesus? At its root, that question was behind the circumcision issue and following the law and its attention that we wrestle with today. Last Sunday, Pastor Jen did a great job emphasizing the importance of our identity as a son or a daughter of God. That's our identity. And it answers the ubiquitous question, who am I? A question that all of us struggle with at some level. Focusing on our identity in Christ is another way of addressing this question that we're exploring today. Am I defined by what I do? Or am I defined by who I am? Am I defined by how much I read my Bible and pray and worship and do good deeds? Or am I defined by the fact that I'm God's son or daughter, who I've chosen to place my faith in him and receive his grace, and I walk in step with his Holy Spirit who empowers me to live out what the scriptures tell us? That's a key question. Early on in my time as a youth pastor at McBick, I was learning a lot, and I still am, and I was especially perplexed by new ideas I was learning about spiritual warfare. A topic that the New Testament touches on frequently, but which is kind of foreign to our 21st, way, 21st century way of thinking. At one point, I expressed my frustration to my senior pastor, Ken Hepner, and I said, Ken, if spiritual warfare and what we're learning, if it's like, why doesn't the Bible just list it out and say, just down the line, here's what you need to know about spiritual warfare? My question was specific to spiritual warfare. But it could be asked of about anything that we have questions about related to our faith in Jesus. How many of us have said, I wish the Bible was just really clear and just laid it out? Kind of five points. Do this, this, and this. Paraphrasing what he said, because I don't remember the exact quote, this is what Ken said. The Bible doesn't give us lists of principles and do's and don'ts because the heart of our faith isn't a formula or a list of rules. The heart of our faith is relationship with Jesus. If Christianity was about formulas and rules, we wouldn't need to be in relationship with Jesus. And relationship with, is what Jesus desires from each of us and what we most need. If I could get everything I needed to know in life in a list in the Bible, why would I need a relationship with Jesus? If I knew that by doing A, B, C, and D, I was good to go, why do I need a relationship? The Bible guides us. The Bible is 
life-giving, it's breathed in, it's God-breathed, it guides us into truth. Because as we read it, we interact with the Holy Spirit. And so here really is Paul's argument that we're going to get into a lot next week and the week to follow. So, Evan, I hope I'm not stepping on your toes too much. You've got plenty of space to go with this. But here's the deal. Is our relationship about following rules? Or is it about being led by the Spirit? Now, one of the primary ways that God's Spirit speaks to us is through his word. So please don't go out of here and say, Pastor Lane said the Bible doesn't matter. As I read the scripture almost every day, my prayer is, God, as I read your word, speak to me through your Holy Spirit. Because his spirit inhabits these words. Again, it's God-breathed. It's living and active. As we interact with it, we're not reading words that were written thousands of years ago. We're interacting with the spirit of God. God's spirit, however, speaks to us beyond lists of rules and formulas and regulations. If you don't remember anything else I've said today, remember this. Jesus longs for relationship with his people. He's looking for children who love him, not rule followers. And what we need to thrive as people, as people of God, isn't rules, it's a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Listen to the words Paul uses in our passage again today associated with keeping the law. Listen to these words as you read this chapter. Slavery, circumcision, burden, obligation. Those are heavy words. They're not relational. Listen in contrast to the words he associates with faith, freedom, spirit, grace, truth, righteousness. Those words speak of the joy that we find in relationship with God. As Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And again, I hope I'm not stepping to, is Evan in this service? Okay, then I can say whatever, I, no. Um, he's going to be preaching about this more, but this really is where Paul goes. In, in almost all of Paul's letters, he starts with, this is who you are in Christ, this is your identity, and then he starts to unpack and this is how you live as people who are filled with God's Spirit. The key factor for followers of Jesus in leaning into faith, rather than being burdened with trying to keep all the requirements of the law, is the Holy Spirit. It makes sense, doesn't it? If God's primary desire is for relationship with us, he would guide us with a person rather than with a set of rules or the law. And again, think of the Old Testament through this template that God gave the law and he gave all the rituals and the sacrifices to show people the insufficiency of human works to try to get sin canceled and be in a relationship with God. And after centuries, as people finally realized that doesn't work, God said, okay, now you're ready. Now you're prepared to receive the only one who can really make you justified and righteous before God. You're ready for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus died and was raised to life and he returned to heaven with his father, 
He gave us his Holy Spirit as our counselor, our advocate, the one who would guide us into all truth. Jesus' clearest teaching on the Spirit is found in, Holy Spirit is found in, in John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 16. And I'd like to read, I'd like to conclude our time together today by reading excerpts from those chapters this morning. I want to invite you to get into a posture of prayer and to receive these words of truth. They'll be on the screen as well, if that kind of helps you lock in. But I'd like you to receive these words of truth from Jesus, the lover of your soul. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. All this I have spoken while I'm still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. May God bless the reading of his word. I would encourage you to reread John chapters 14 to 16. Powerful words. The most amazing thing of all in that whole section is when Jesus says this unbelievable thing to his disciples. You'll actually be better off when I leave. And they were probably like, what? We've spent three and a half years with you. We love you. We've seen how you live. You, you point us to God. And Jesus said, when I'm gone, you'll actually be better off. Because I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who lives in you, and he's the one that will guide you into truth. That's the context of what I just read. It's by faith in Jesus that we're saved by grace. Following rules won't save us. It's our relationship with God through his Holy Spirit that brings life. Striving to earn God's approval leads to slavery 
and ultimately to death. To quote Paul again, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Invite the worship team to come up. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you've given us your word and that points us to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I thank you that just as you said in the passage that I read excerpts from, you didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us as orphans, but you're always with us. God, as, as people, we, we strive naturally to try to earn your favor, feeling like we need to achieve salvation, that it's too easy or unfair for us just to be given a gift. And yet, your word in the New Testament repeatedly tells us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not from ourselves, lest we should boast, but it's the gift of God through the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would receive your gift this morning, that we would set aside our attempts to try to earn your favor or to earn salvation, that we would come before you in brokenness and humility and declare to you, Jesus, without you I'm lost. I need your grace, your forgiveness, your life. I need your Holy Spirit. Sink this truth deep into our hearts, Lord. Transform us that we will be people marked by your freedom and not by the bondage of striving to earn our salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.